hello everybody and welcome back to beware the artist i am jeremy jersa and here today with me i am with the queen of halloween the sorceress of scream uh miss jesse hardesty um jesse uh, if uh you want to kind of go through a little rundown of who you are and what is it that you do well i'm jesse hardesty and no that's not a Check Texas Chainsaw Massacre reference. My last name really is Hardesty, like Sally Hardesty. Um, and I make spooky art, mostly in the form of carvings and woodcut printmaking. Um, I'm a professor and a curator full-time in Westminster, Maryland at Carroll Community College. And I have both my undergraduate and my graduate degree in print media. Now, what is it about printmaking that, that, that drew you to this form of art? Um, well, when I started college, I kind of, uh, my teenage brain was like, oh, pick a college and a place you want to live. Don't think anything about what the department actually has to offer you. Just go somewhere that you want to live. So I lived in Salem, Massachusetts. I went to Salem State, which used to be Salem State College and is now Salem State University. And I got in as an art major with an undeclared concentration. So I kind of had to pick one when I got there. And I started taking classes just to see what I liked. And I took a printmaking class and I was like, this is really interesting. I took like a mono printing class and I was like, I kind of want to know more about this. So then I took a screen printing class and I was like, this is cool. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's cool. And then I took a relief printmaking class and I was completely and totally hooked at that point and just stuck with printmaking. So what is it about the, the relief printmaking that you feel is uh, just so intriguing compared to the other printmaking practices? Um, I did go on and also learn lithography and intaglio, both of which I think are really badass and I have done a bit too. But there's just something about how direct and graphic and bold and iconic the look of woodcut is. Woodcut and lino cut and stamp making, it really can't be recreated with any other process. It's so, it's so harsh in a lot of ways compared to other processes. And there's so much at stake when you're making a block. I, I kind of feel like, it always pushes you with that forward, like that forward momentum. You can't just erase a mark and keep going back into a mark. Like once you're carving, you're carving and that's it. And you just keep making those decisions until eventually the block is carved. So it's very immediate, which I enjoy. Are there ever any kind of points in the carving where the, the design changes at all? Because um, you were talking about once it's down, it's there. Um, and then kind of you can't really change that. So is there any point where that design just kind of shifts because maybe maybe you messed up and you need to pivot? That does occasionally happen. Um, sometimes I'll put a drawing down on a block and I'll be like, oh, this maybe isn't exactly what I wanted. And then I'll actually go over the drawing with Sharpie. Like I'll go over it with a metallic Sharpie. Um, I've got So like this, I don't know if you'll be able to see it or not. This is one I've been working on, but you can see there's silver kind of running along the edge. Um, and I did that because I wanted to see what a, what a carved edge would look like versus just the straight black. 
And then I ended up liking it and I kept it. So I just carved right into that silver. But sometimes I'll just make a full edit. Like um, this one, obviously I looked at a hand and the hand didn't have a candle sitting in the middle of it like this. So actually after I drew the hand, I then drew with those metallics directly on top to get this and then carved into that and then finished the rest of the hand. Um, that, sometimes I might make a decision like while I'm carving, I'll see an area and I'll be like, hmm, I wonder if that would look good carved out. Mm -hmm. So I'll approximate a carved mark with those metallic Sharpies to see if I want to carve it. And then I'll be like, oh, that looks really good. And then I'll go ahead and cut it. But, That's interesting because I, I didn't really kind of realize how how fluid that that process is. I, I always I always think of wood block as, as very rigid. I, I guess because it's such a a hard kind of structure to begin with that having that kind of fluidity in it is is really interesting. Yeah, I, I like well the way that I work, I put down what I think of as a sketch. And then all of the actual magic of it happens while I'm carving because I'm making those decisions of what I think it's gonna look like. So my, my drawings that go on blocks are really loose and sketchy. They're kind of just a framework. Other printmakers, us other carvers are more precise with it. Just to put the drawing on there and then the carving looks almost exactly like their original drawing. It's like completely planned out in that drawing process. Whereas I'm more of an intuitive carver. So for me, a lot of it happens while I carve. Um, so one thing that, that has always intrigued, intrigued me about your practice is that um, it, it almost fits between this realm of sculpture and printmaking. So you, you have these kind of, um, you have the woodcuts and they, they exist as a piece of art in themselves. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? So obviously my background is in printmaking um, and I have a press hiding over here that's all wrapped up, but lately, these past few years, I've really just, gone totally down the rabbit hole with the carvings um, because it used to be that the carving was just the vehicle that you used to get the prints and the prints were this amazing thing that was the art form and the block was just sort of a byproduct of the process and that's really truly the case when you're doing reduction printing because you're destroying the block with every layer that you print of color and then you have this amazing full color print and then the block's kind of like, yeah, it's just your last layer. It's not very exciting. And kind of doing that and thinking about the blocks and I would be left with the blocks just filling up my studio. Like I remember my graduate school studio, I was doing all of these large scale portraits, like big three and four and five and six foot portraits. But my studio was just filled with the blocks. So I was just spending all this time with the blocks. And after a while I got super attached to them. And I started thinking more about the carving as the finished thing and how I could push that. Um, and there's obviously there's other artists that do this, that do painted carvings or carving sculptures. Um, and I kind of just kept going in that direction. And now at this point I'm making hundreds of carvings in a year and I'm probably only pulling maybe a half dozen at most print editions. So it's kind of flip-flopped. 
In, um, in terms of the research that goes into the, the imagery that you're selecting, what is your, what is your process like? I take uh, way too many photos all the time. My phone has over 70,000 photos in it right now. I need to clean some out. Pretty much anytime I travel, anytime I go anywhere, anytime I think of something, I'm taking a picture of it. So I kind of mine those photos. I, I go to lots of cemeteries and the work I'm working on right now is mostly cemetery symbolism. So I've actually been harvesting all of my cemetery visits because I'm super fascinated by the different emblems and symbols that are on tombstones and how they vary from different areas and what the symbolism means. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by the torches that you see in cemeteries lately. So I have two pieces that are sort of these inverted cemetery torches. Um, a lot of the stuff just kind of comes out of my head too. I used to be, I used to like to work really realistically. I used to always, you know, I'm doing portraits and it had to be perfect. And then I just kind of burnt myself out on things looking perfect. The pump, the jack-o'-lanterns and skulls and things kind of were just goofy ass doodles I was doing for myself and, the, myself. and then that's what people picked up on and were like, oh, we want this. Like, so I embraced it and now I just, I'm not very precious with the mm -hmm. process. Sometimes I'll just doodle a bunch of stuff, like, kind of like a flash sheet and I'll just have stacks of weird flash sheets of ideas and then I'll blow those up into something bigger. But um, I mean, I watch, I watch scary movies and fantasy movies and I read comic books and I like heavy metal and that's all probably swirling around too. Yeah, how do you... Um how do you choose the cemetery locations that you actually visit? Are you, are you going for specific graves or do you, do you just kind of notice this um, cemetery pop up on the side of the road and you're like, oh, that looks cool. Let's, let's kind of stop by. Um, it's both. Look, I definitely have been known to pull over just because I'm like, oh, it's a cool cemetery. I'm going to go check it out. There's actually one about 20 minutes north of Carroll that I really like that's sort of like abandoned, I think, but has some cool old stones in it. I like the older stones better. I like an interesting new stone, but they're not really full of the symbolism that I'm looking for or that I'm attracted to. So mostly it's old cemeteries, mm -hmm. especially when I'm traveling through places like New England where I know there's lots of really old cemeteries. I kind of make a point of going to see them um, there's a really big, amazing one in Philly. I love, there's a giant one in Brooklyn that I'm a big, that I'm a big fan of. I have been to a number of times. Um, being from Maryland, do you have any type of, uh, connection to, or like a kind of a yearning for the, uh, creation of the Ouija board? Yeah, the planchettes actually spawned out of my my living in Baltimore. Um, obviously, I always liked spooky stuff. I had we had Ouija boards in the house growing up. We actually had an antique wooden one, like a spooky legit one. Sorry if you hear a train or a helicopter or whatever that may be outside. You're good. Um, you know how it is here. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, there's tons of Ouija board history in Baltimore. 
Um, and the guy that had the patent for the Ouija board actually is buried in Baltimore in Greenmount. Mm-hmm. And he actually, uh, he went to Maryland Institute. And his, yeah, his tombstone, um, a, a small historical society a few years ago actually installed a Ouija board tombstone for him. Oh, really? <laughs> that's, that's kind of amazing. It's big. So the first um, couple planchettes I made, I, I kind of made them big because I was thinking about that tombstone and I was like, oh, I'll make one and leave it there for him. So I made them big because I wanted people to, who came to visit to be able to play his tombstone. So I, like I started that. leaving it there every once in a while. And they started showing up in places on the internet. Like they started showing up on like the weird travel guides and whatnot, people taking pictures of them. Uh, the poor cemetery keepers there probably have a stack of them that they just keep taking away because they think they're weird. <laughs> but they just spawned into this ongoing um, form that I use as a vehicle for my other ideas. Mm-hmm. Now that planchettes have kind of become my signature, but they st- that's where they started. Um, how would you say that uh, curating kind of, how did that, how did that come about for you? Um. When I was at Salem State, I was a curatorial assistant to um, a professor there named Haig Margin, who I was kind of his assistant in, well, I was his assistant in the studios and in the gallery, and I took most of his classes. I was just, him and I were just around each other all the time. And uh, shadowing him, I just, I realized that I really enjoyed doing that work and that I, I seemed to have a good eye for it naturally. I kind of took to it quickly and I did it a couple semesters over and over, even though I didn't need the credits. I did it just because I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then in graduate school, I kind of dabbled in, oh, what happens if I come up with a concept and I curate it? So yeah, so I um, I really took to curating and I got this, this job offer to take a multi-hat position at Carroll where I get to be a curator and a professor and I'm the department head. And so I have free run of the galleries there and I, uh, I kind of hit the ground running and I've just been curating. I curate usually five shows in a semester across three gallery spaces. Um, and yeah, I just, I love doing it. I try to showcase a really wide range of artists, people from different backgrounds, different faiths, um, different countries of origin, different age groups. I try to really bring different things that I think people that are at the college wouldn't have a chance to see otherwise to campus. And I, uh, it's interesting because my own personal taste, of course, is the spooky weirdo stuff. and. Every once in a while, I let that creep into the gallery, but I mostly curate with a collegiate mind of what's what's important in our current social climate. What's something that's really technically good that will inspire students? You know, who who is someone locally that needs a good kind of push into showing? Like, I, I really have a separate brain for curating. That's awesome. I, I like that because uh, Carol, it's you know, it's it's close enough to a lot of things, but just far enough that um, people aren't making that trek constantly. Um, so so it, it becomes a little bit of a hassle for them to get out to museums or get out to gallery spaces. So I really love that idea that um, you're bringing it to them. You're, you're opening this world up for um, making it easier and more accessible. 
um, with, with, with Carol, as we're talking about Carol, um, we both teach there. Um, how, how would you describe the influence of your teaching practice onto your studio practice? Is there, is there any type of inverse or do you see them as two separate things? I definitely feel like my, my students keep me lively and keep me active. Like, cause I always kind of have them on a back burner, even when I'm working, I'm kind of thinking like, Oh, you know, like, like how is, how is this something I could relate back to them in class? Or like, I, they're, they're kind of always on my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my students, they're sort of like my children. I think they give me gray hair. Like I'm their mom. Sometimes I've taught virtual classes from my studio here. When the pandemic hit, I kind of had to do that. So my summer class, I taught a few classes here with my own equipment and um, virtually. And then I also uh, entirely by hand in my garage actually taught my, re- my printmaking class how to pull relief by hand, you know, with a wooden spoon and some ink. I, I taught them how to build their own jig. They did reduction prints at home and they actually came out great. That's awesome. That's amazing. Um, through your kind of, you know, expansive career, you've, you've, you, you curate, you teach, you're, you're a practicing studio artist, you, um, you're constantly doing all of these kind of shows that are popping up here and there. Um, what would you say is kind of a bit of advice that you would give to the up and coming kind of generation of creatives? Go through the open doors. Don't bloody your knuckles banging at the doors that aren't open. Have you had uh, experiences with that? I, okay, so when I was an undergrad, I kind of was still, I was young, I was still developing a voice. And by the end of undergrad, I had started, started to really start to mine this spooky stuff that I'm doing now in a much more mature way. I was really going at that. And then I got to grad school and my classmates there were completely different, a totally different breed. It was a totally different vibe. Um, And all that stuff got totally ripped to shreds. And I basically had to figure out other ways to um, survive in what felt like a hostile climate. Um, And I experimented with all kinds of other subject matter and some of the work I made was really good but it ultimately really exhausted me. And what I realized I was looking at was years of being in a rat race, of trying to constantly apply for residencies and constantly apply for shows and trying to always be aware of what the right show was and the right residency. And it was all starting to add up. Mm-hmm. Like if you're applying to, you know, they tell you in grad school, apply to a dozen shows every month. Well, when the shows cost 40 and $50 to apply to and you're working at a fucking coffee shop, like it's just not realistic. And I, um, I pretty much burn out on the gallery scene. I told, I sold a bunch of work right before I graduated and that got me through summer. And then I had about a year where I just didn't, just didn't make work because I was so unexcited and uh, honestly felt excluded from a lot of these like uh, highbrow white cube type spaces that the kind of work that I was wanting to make this sort of weirdo kind of alternative almost lowbrow illustrative work 
it just wasn't what those galleries were looking for. It wasn't what my graduate school was interested in. And I, it was, you know, it was banging my, let me in, let me in, let me in. And the doors just weren't opening. But then uh, I hit that fuck it point where I said, I don't fucking care what these galleries want. I don't even like half of these galleries. I'm just going to make work because I miss my hands making work. Mm. Um, And when I had hit that point when my hands started working again and I stopped paying attention to the closed doors, other doors just started to open. I started doing um, heavy, I I taught, I've taught woodcut workshops at heavy metal concert, like camping events. And you know what? It's so much more fun hanging out with metalheads and teaching them how to make stamps than it is being worried about some flashy new gallery in Brooklyn, like I started showing in tattoo shops. I started showing at oddities markets and dark art markets. And that's where my work started to pick up traction and people actually started caring about what I was doing. And I met people that were doing what I was doing and could be kin. And those doors kept opening. And now, you know, there's galleries that specialize in just that stuff. And that's kind of the direction that my work has started to head in is those events and those galleries that are for what I do. And I still kind of have my foot as a curator in that other world that is the more traditional gallery that showcases all of the different types of work. Um, And I think I'm much happier that way, having my personal work be in a weird niche and then getting to be the curator that curates the more um, normal breadth of work Mm -hmm. and kind of is in tune with those currents because I I don't have to be an artist in those currents anymore. I just get to be a curator. Yeah, yeah. So that I think that separation for me has been great. Yeah, that 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 sounds like a perfect kind of separation. You're still fulfilling these these wants through those different pathways, and I, I think that's that's really exciting. Um, with so much of what we do as artists, a lot of it has to do with finding ways to interact with people, and in today's society with COVID and the artist life being extremely lonely already with so much time spent in the studio, um, just kind of working singularly, not really seeing anyone. Um, what do you do to kind of counteract the, those, those feelings? Feelings of loneliness? Yeah. I carve more. <laughs> so your reaction is just to go deeper into the work and, and further isolate. <laughs> um. I sort of think about like Instagram and similar things as like a little pocket hype squad. It's like, I just talk to other artists on there and like trade art and do that. And like, I'll even send um, voice messages in the chats a lot so that I can hear someone else's voice when they respond and have that dialogue back and forth. It's been hard though with the pandemic, not being able to physically see people, like have a person come in your studio and hang out with you and like, I previously traveled pretty extensively, like at least once a month, I was driving to some event, some, some dark art fair, some weirdo residency or some other, you know, traveling to visit a friend who was almost always an artist. Um, like I went cross country for five weeks in the summer of 2018. And I think almost everyone I stayed with was an artist that I knew either from Southern Graphics Council conventions, the internet, or 
grad school or undergrad. Like I kind of just built a map out of my, my network of weirdo friends. <laughs> and not being able to do that during this pandemic has been frustrating. The, uh, I, I always find the, the oddities markets and the um, kind of dark arts festivals and, and things like that so so interesting um, for the people that are listening that, that don't really know what those kind of events are. Could you describe those a little bit? Sure. So there's kind of an interesting, I guess, subcultural trend right now for obviously curated art markets have been a thing for ages. But in the past couple of years, they have kind of spawned this subculture version that's specifically spooky stuff, macabre stuff, dark arts. Um, so you'll see someone selling human bones and taxidermy right next to someone who specifically does dark fantasy illustration next to like me making spooky woodcuts next to someone making like Victorian morning jewelry next to someone who sells, you know, sculptures with blinking eyes on them like there it's this whole weird collection of things that are odd things that attract odd people odd art for odd people and that's where I'm finding my community and it, I mean if it, it you do see some people that don't look like they'd be into odd stuff walking around and sometimes those are the people that come up and go I want all three of these here's cash and you go wow found my people um, do you find yourself uh, collecting a bunch of oddities and occult items and, and weird, weird things? Yeah, I kind of always have. Um, both of my parents at one point were antique stealers and my mom still is an antique stealer. Uh, my grandparents even were at one point, so I, I grew up in a house full of old shit. <laughs> uh, I collect... Um, Halloween blow molds, the vintage ones, the plastic blow molds that have that kind of spooky retro look to them. I also collect Victorian um, jewelry caskets, metal jewelry caskets. And what, what exactly is a jewelry casket? Uh, so a, a fancy jewelry box, basically. Okay. Um, and similar things. Yeah. I, so yeah, I have, and I have, you know, I have some human bones and I have some animal bones and some taxidermy. I have a really beautiful big um, black ram head. That's probably one of my favorite weird things I've acquired recently. What uh, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered some really weird, weird shit. Um, so what uh, what would you say is kind of the weirdest thing that you've ever encountered? And it could be a place too. At like a market or just in general? Just in, in my general. Life? Just in general. I feel like a lot of my life is it's just weird <laughs> things. I definitely lived in a haunted house for a year when I was a kid, Ooh. like a like a, a house that had stereotypical like haunting, like stuff flew off the walls and there were weird knocking sounds and lights where there shouldn't have been and cold and you'd get blasted with like cold drafts and you'd hear sounds from places there shouldn't have been sounds and doors would go like this and objects would disappear and reappear months later. Very spooky. Where that was uh, probably kind of where was this located? Westminster, actually. Okay. How old was the house? It was from the 1800s, like Pony Express era. Okay, that's wild. I would, I would, I would, I would just kind of run and stay at a friend's house. I would. There was no way I could, I could actually live in something like that. 
I was like 10 ish around. I was at a very like tender turning age where I was like almost not a child anymore, but still kind of a child. It was definitely a weird, um, gave me sleeping problems for a number of years. Mm -hmm. It was also kind of fascinating at the same time. It's one of those things where it was like, I was horribly uncomfortable about it, but looking back, wouldn't take the experience away. Would you call it a, would you call it a seminal experience? I suppose so. Yeah. Um, when you were younger, were you still into all of the creepy, ghoulish, occult things that you are now? Yeah, I, um, even as a little kid, like a little baby, I was kind of fascinated with Halloween and spooky things. I was a total scaredy cat. Like I would want to stay up and watch the scary movies and then I wouldn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could actually watch a scary movie and sleep a full night until I was like 20. <laughs> now, now I watch them before bed and I'm like, before the movie's even over. And I'm like, it's fine, my dreams are fine. I watch something sweet and pleasant before bed and I have nightmares. So what, uh, what do you have kind of going on in the studio while you're working? Is there music playing? Are you listening to podcasts? What's, what's, what's the atmosphere like? Well, it used to, for years, always be music. It used to be um, lots of like doom and sludge metal because that like kind of heavy evilness was really good for printing too. Um, lots of movie soundtracks there for a few years, but lately, this past year, year and a half, has almost exclusively been podcasts. I've gotten super hooked on podcasts, and it's usually like horror anthology, true crime, um, weird, you know, paranormal, aliens, cults, all that stuff. So I'm actively filling my brain with information about all the weird shit I'm making, even while I'm working. Um, today it was a horror anthology um, audiobook that I just finished like right before this call actually. Um, so as we're kind of coming up on this time of year this is this is kind of like this is your time. Um, yeah. How do how do things I know you do a countdown every year even starting the day after Halloween but how does how does everything kind of change for you? Um, during these kind of months leading up to Halloween? Um, do you mean specifically now in times of COVID or just in general? Just in general. Well, I always have this fantasy about how much work I'm gonna get done in the summer. It, it never happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I end up teaching summer classes and then I'll travel to go see someone and then I'll get back and I'll be like, oh shit, I don't have any work. So then it's this mad scramble always. I think I just work better with that light, uh, that fire lit under my ass. I think I need that sometimes actually to get the really good work done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I might schedule, I'm gonna be in the studio for nine hours and I might be staring off into space for like two of those hours. But if I don't have those two hours that I do that, the work is shit. I oh, have to come, I, I, I agree have with you. I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I have to have the ritual of all the things I do when I arrive that set me into that mindset to be in the space and then I have to be here and then I get the work done. So I guess um, my whole life becomes more 
fervent and ritualized the closer we get to Halloween because you know it's the time of the harvest and the time of uh, of dying and the shifting of seasons and Halloween is that last triumphant hurrah of now it's time to die. Mm -hmm. It's a celebration of dying of mortality. So I think my brain goes into that harvest mode of harvesting all of the ideas that I've been growing all year and getting them out. What is the, uh, what's the typical Jesse Hardesty Halloween? They're different every year. Um, I've had a few quiet years where I've just carved pumpkins and watched spooky movies and, and given out candy. I, lo I love giving candy to trick-or-treaters. Um, I love doing that. And then, of course, I always have... Halloween for me is kind of the whole month and then it culminates on Halloween night. So Halloween night's usually some sort of event. More years, it's, you know, a party or a big bonfire or rituals or um, traveling somewhere. I mean, I used to live in Salem, so all of Salem's downtown is just a big wild event. Like the people watching and the energy is just crazy. So I definitely have done that a number of years. Um, there was one year where I camped on an island on Halloween and it was just like this very intimate, maybe like 15 people in costumes around bonfires, like eating candy apples and telling ghost stories on an island. That's wild. Um, yeah, so this year I think will be a small gathering, uh, a coven type gathering this year, I think with a, with a bonfire and some private things happening. I think this is a good year for that. It's not a good year to be at a giant rager. No, no I'm <laughs> sure. So what exactly does a, a, a coven type gathering entail? Um, it's just more intimate, more private things. I suppose. Okay. You'd have to go to one to know. <laughs> um, so what would be kind of a a dream project if you if you haven't already obtained something that you've always dreamed of doing? What would be a, a dream project that you want to accomplish at some point? Ooh. Uh, there's a there's a printmaking residency that's in Belgium that I've always wanted to go to. Um, that's on my list of things I would like to do before I kick the bucket. Um, the Franz, Franz Masriel Centrum, and I would like to go there. Oh, why? Uh, what's, uh, what's so special about that residency? Um, it, it just, I, ever since I learned about it and I saw all of the different amazing artists that have kind of gone through it and it's in this sort of idyllic location in Belgium and I just, I would like to have that experience. And of course I have some of um, the artists that it's named after Franz Masriel. I have some of old books with his kind of woodcut illustrations. And I've just, I, I don't know, I just, it would be a cool thing within the lineage of print. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, there's tons of printmaking history in Mexico. And I've always wanted to do like a print oriented tour of Mexico. Uh, there's lots of things artistically I would like to do. Obviously I want to like have a giant gallery and fill it with giant weird ass wood you know, woodcuts. I actually also, at some point it's gonna get done. I've been planning it for years. I know the dimensions for a coffin that would fit me specifically and I want to carve my own coffin. Wow. Um, I have sketches for it. And I, 
you know, different panels designed out that would be sort of different narratives or symbols from my own life. So that's a project that will at some point come to fruition, hopefully before I die. <laughs> um, if it happens, if it doesn't happen, would you leave those plans for someone to finish for you? Yeah, probably. I would probably have some other carver do it. That's amazing. Um, so on that It'd be kind of cool if it was partially finished and then another yeah I, I think on that note I think that's a, a good place to end literally end at the end yeah. um, <laughs> um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show it was an absolute pleasure um, sure. and it's always it's always great to see you um, so uh, everyone if you are watching this please make sure that you go check out Jesse's work on Instagram as well as her website uh, jessiehardesty.com and uh, I will see you all next week. All right. Bye. So much, Jeremy.